Mark Drake is on a mission to train leaders around the world about the miracle and mystery of Christ living his life in and through all who will believe. Join us on this journey into the heart of the real new covenant and the transforming power of true grace. We're starting this week on a on a series uh, that is is uh, is based on respect. So we're going to be talking about respect for for one another, what what respect does and, and why we need it and and how if it's used correctly, it protects us and it protects our relationships, both in our in our family and in our friendships and in our spiritual family. But when we talk about respect, it. I think it's important to realize that this is not something that comes natural to us, although it would have if there would not have been the fall. We would have naturally respected other human beings because the breath of God is in them. But because of the fall, we do not naturally, this is not something that just naturally happens. We have to cultivate a respect both for each other and a respect for the fact that, that God has created in making you his crowning creation. Of all the things that God made, he said they were all good. But the crowning creation was when he made in his own image male and female. And it is important to understand that to express the fullness of the image of God, it required that he create both male and female. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, very clear on that, that he made them both. And that was the image of God in the earth. But the dilemma that we have is that because of the fall, we found ourselves slipping into self-preservation and self-defense, which is the opposite of showing respect for other people. The first thing Adam did when he knew he was caught was begin to blame. And uh, don't, 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 don't you love the audacity of Adam to say to God, it was the woman that you made. <laughs> but from that moment on, we've had to deal with the reality that, that the truth very oftentimes frightens us. It oftentimes scares us. It, it oftentimes puts us in a place where we're afraid we're going to get exposed when from the very beginning, God's desire was that his truth, which is the only actual truth, that his truth be good for us. Before God gave the laws uh, from Mount Sinai through Moses to the children of Israel, he said, I've brought you here into the wilderness to bring you to myself. And everything that's going to happen here is for your good always. And then God gave the law. He didn't give the law because he was angry or wanted to hurt, but it was because this is the way life works best. And in order to enjoy any kind of abundant life, both natural and spiritual, requires that I develop a genuine respect for truth. The problem is that I love truth when it agrees with me. My dilemma is, that God's truth so often speaks against me. Now, if I can learn by the help of the Holy Spirit to be telling myself the truth, 
then I get the benefit of what the truth will do. And ultimately, Jesus said, you shall come to know the truth and the truth will do what? It will set you free. And that's applicable in a lot of different ways. But freedom always comes when we agree with God against ourselves. We agree that he tells the truth. And when we agree with him, then those parts of our life that do not line up with his truth begin to be affected by the work of the Holy Spirit. Transformation comes when I'm willing to tell myself the truth. So James talks about this in James chapter 1. And uh, we have some slides and some we were not able to put together uh, because of some difficulties. So just pull out your Bible and uh, that way I'll know that you're following along or pull out your phone and I'll just take it by faith that you're not texting, but actually you're, yeah, I know, we, we're watching you. James chapter 1, you know, James starts the entire letter talking about enduring trials and tribulations. And of course, you know what a tribulation is. It's a problem that you pray about and it gets worse. That's a tribulation. It doesn't get fixed, it gets worse. And James talks about that, about every kind of trial and tribulation, but understanding that this thing that I am hating so much and that I am certainly not enjoying is actually going to do me good. And that's, that's where the, the, the issue of learning to respect the truth and being willing to tell myself the truth when it speaks against me because I know that the outcome will be good for me. And that's what I have to keep telling myself because the enemy wants to try to get me to defend myself and self-preservation. This is why Jesus uh, said in Matthew that he who tries to hang on to his life is going to lose it. But he who is willing to lose it for my sake will gain real life because the truth will set us free and it will bring us into an abundance in our lives. So James is talking about the struggle of trials that don't give way when we pray. So we're learning to develop endurance and perseverance. And here in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, he says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That, that's an amazing list of three things right there. If you and I would continually ask the Holy Spirit to empower us by His grace to do those three things, just imagine how different our lives will in fact be because it puts us in a place where the truth can come into us and change us as only the truth can. And then he goes on, and it's, it's a very, very interesting statement. He says next, For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires now you know for years i would read that and think that seems strange to me that that james would be writing this and in the middle of this he would make this statement that would seem duh so obvious to everybody uh for just getting mad isn't a good thing but that's really not what james is saying the context of this if we back up into the first part of the chapter is facing and enduring trials they don't change, but enduring them changes me. And then James says that if you lack wisdom, you can ask of a God. If you don't know what to do, 
And then he makes this interesting statement, because the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life God desires. You know the anger he's talking about here in context? He's talking about how I get angry at myself when I fail. He's talking about I get angry at myself when I fall short, when I miss the mark, when I sin, when I try and I fail. Then I get mad at myself. Why do I do that? Well, I have this idea, which is erroneous, but it seems logical to me as a human being, that if I get angry at myself, then that will pump up some kind of a self-power in me so that the next time I'm faced with that, I will not give in to it. I'll be strong enough to say no to it. And it never works. Why not? Because the anger of man can never produce the righteousness of God. Just getting angry at myself will never make me more godly in God's sight. It will never make my behavior more righteous. Only the power of Christ's grace working in me can make my behavior more righteous. So James says, don't get mad at yourself. No good will come from that. In fact, getting mad at yourself when you sin only pumps up your self-effort even more. Which makes it more difficult to let grace do its work inside of us. So rather than getting angry, we tell ourselves the truth. We agree with the truth. That's what confession is all about. When James later in his letter says, confess your faults to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed, the word confess means to agree with the truth against yourself. When you've committed, let me rephrase that, when someone has committed a crime, because <laughs> I know this wouldn't apply to any of you, so we'll have to refer to somebody else. When someone else has committed a crime and the police pick them up and they confess, what have they just done? They've agreed with the truth against themselves. That's what confession is. Yes, God, I blew it. That was me. It wasn't the woman you gave me. It was me. And that kind of confession is healthy because it gets us to respect the power of the truth of God when we tell ourselves the truth about our own behavior then the power of the Holy Spirit can do transforming work in us. So he goes on and he says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you. Of course, that's the word of truth. The word of truth gets planted in us. We receive it with hum with humility and then a transformation happens. Now, it goes on and he says, here's the danger. He says, uh, uh, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man. Now, here's the metaphor he's going to give us, and it's a powerful one. Is like a man who looks at himself in a mirror, looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. That man, but I'm sorry, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. That's the law of life in Christ by the power of the spirit. That man, and he continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it. He will be blessed in what he does. So James uses this analogy of I look in the mirror and I see what I'm really like. I see that, yes, no matter how I try to pull it forward, 
my hair has fallen out. There's no doubt about it. And though I don't know who I'm going to vote for, I'm going for Trump's hairdo. But but I look in the mirror and I see myself and I, you know, I I, I see that that uh, I'm starting to get those spots that as a little kid, I used to wonder why my grandparents had those spots. You know what I'm talking about? You know, I'm starting to get that, you know, but 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 then I turn away from the mirror. And because I don't like some of what I saw, I just conveniently forget that that's what I really look like. Now, James uses this analogy about the truth and about being willing to tell myself the truth so that the truth can change me, not hurt me, but help me so that it will do me good. I may feel bad when I first see what I really look like in the mirror. But if I'm always reminding myself that the goal of the word of truth is transformation in my life that I might be like his son forever and ever, then I see the reason for it. I see the goal. I see the purpose. So then I become more willing to tell myself the truth. Now, the truth has two sides to it, at least the way we're going to look at it today. The word of truth has two different sides. The first side of the word of truth that we need to focus on is not what's wrong with us. Let me say that again. The first side of the truth that we must focus on is not what's wrong with us. We must be focusing on how the word tells us what Christ has done for us already, what he is currently doing in us and what he is going to do in us throughout eternity. That's what the word of truth wants to do. It wants to give us the hope to know that Christ is at work inside of us. He has already done an amazing thing. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to give yourself any credit for any maturity in your life, but how easy it is to kick yourself when you mess up? And yet one of the things that the Word of God has given to us for is so that we're constantly looking into it and being reminded God's love for me is from everlasting to everlasting. Christ died once for all. He doesn't have to die again every time I blow it. I understand that his promise to me is that he will finish what he began in me. These are all Bible verses that when I feed on the word, when I look into the mirror of the word and I look at that and I, as a mirror, I see myself. I'm one of those whom he loves forever and ever. I'm one of those whom he's working inside of changing forever and ever. But the second side of the word of truth is in it. I see what's wrong with me in the word of truth. I see what I ought to be, but am not in the word of truth. I see what I ought to be doing in a given situation, but I am not. Now, if I am not already established in his everlasting love for me, When I see where I am wrong and where I'm missing the mark, then I get led into condemnation. And one of the best understandings of condemnation is that it not just tells you that you're wrong, but it steals your hope that you could ever be made right again. 
And that's the work of the enemy. Paul says in Christ, there's to be no condemnation. Why? Because we're so awesome? No, because God has promised he's going to finish what he started in us. But condemnation steals my hope. Again, because it focuses back on my self-effort. So when I feel condemnation, I don't want to feel that way and I don't want to stay this way. So I get mad at myself. And then I remember, wait a minute, James said, this is a waste of effort. Because just getting mad at myself when I miss the mark, when I miss the... Well, I don't, I don't like so much that being miss the mark in there. I would feel more comfortable if it was miss the Josh or something. You know, I mean, it's, you know, we just have to make that word mean something else, Pastor. I don't know what to tell you. But, 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 but both sides... Both sides of the word of truth are absolutely critical. So the answer to the first side, the side of the word of truth that keeps telling me how much God loves me, how God has determined to finish his work in me, what Christ has already done for me, what he's doing for me now, what I must do in that regard is keep feeding myself on that part of the word of truth. Keep feeding myself on those places in the scripture where I am promised that God is doing a work. He's the worker. I'm just the recipient of the work. But when we get to the second part, now I can read where the word speaks against me, corrects me. The word says, don't do it this way, but do it that way. And instead of being overcome with condemnation, I am filled with hope so that I draw near to him. Condemnation will always make me draw away from him. Hope will always draw me towards him. And that's what the word is designed to do in our lives. And, 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 and the word that we're talking about here is not the ink on the page of the book that you may be holding or the pixels of the phone that you may be holding. The, the, the word, the truth, is what those words mean. I remember many, many, many years ago when we had had almost no experience with any Christians outside of our little teeny communal group. And somehow or another, we started hanging out with some uh, particular kind of Pentecostals and and then then realized we we was one. (laughs) Didn't know that's what we was, but found out we was one. But I remember I remember being at a Bible study and somebody set their can of Coke on top of their Bible And one of the elder ladies there just came unglued and had a fit and said, my God, you do not set something on the holy word. Well, you know, I was just a dumb young guy, but I was at least smart enough to know that the ink on the page in that book is not the word of God. The truth that that communicates, that's what sets you free. Those words are the same words that Shakespeare used, but they don't set anybody free. But the power of those words, the truth of those words, the fact that they come from God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The meaning, the truth of those words is what changes us, especially when we agree with it, when it disagrees with us. That's when we have to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. You know, it's interesting. In our present workplace today, around the world, people are literally paid millions of dollars to travel around the world and tell other people where they're wrong and how to do it better. 
You know what an NFL coach gets paid millions of dollars to do? To yell and say, quit doing it that way. Can you imagine? Now, this may happen on the Seahawks. I don't know. They're kind of small, but uh, it probably wouldn't with some other teams. But, I mean, but can you imagine? I may as well go to the airport right now. Uh, <laughs> can you imagine one of these 300-pound linemen saying to the coach, Oh, man, come on, you hurt my feelings. <laughs> no, actually, if he's got any sense at all, he's going to say, Tell me some more. I want to know where I'm missing. I want to know what I'm doing wrong. Because I didn't get on this team just to get by. I want to get better. I want to get better at this. I want to, I want the results to be better. Well, if you want the results to be better, then you're going to have to listen to the truth. If I keep doing things the way I've always done them, I will always get the same results. We all know that. We've heard it over and over and over again. When you go to the doctor, what do you want him to tell you? Ah, oh, you look so good. That'll be $300. Thank you very much. Say, no, actually, I'm really concerned about this congestion. Oh, now, come on, Doc, you're hurting my feelings, man. We know better than that. Because in those contexts, we know that hearing the truth against ourselves is a good thing. Because now we know where we can change. Now we know which direction we can uh, go towards. We can stop doing this, start doing that. But in our walk with Christ, it becomes even greater because as the word of truth reveals where I'm missing it, it's not just me deciding to use my willpower to do something different. Now I know how to seek God. So the power of him living in me will do it in me, do it for me, do it through me. But in order to have that transformation... I've got to line up with the truth. I've got to be able to look at it and say, yes, that's right. I'm wrong. You know, one of my good buddies, uh, I think he's still in the service today, probably uh, is Vince Pomeroy. You know, Vince is a pilot. And uh, what he does for a living is he flies. A, uh, I think he's I think he says a 737 uh, or something like that. Anyway, he knows the numbers. But flies up to the to the North Slope, drops off workers and flies some back. And so what he does for a living is he he flies the plane. You know what that means? That means from the moment he gets in that plane, somebody over the radio is telling him what to do. And he gets really offended by that. No, he doesn't. I mean, how would you like to be sitting in the front row of a relatively small commercial plane and overhear the pilot talking to the tower and saying, I don't want to descend 500 feet. No, no, please, sir, do what they're telling you, all right? They see the big picture. They see all the other planes out there that we don't see. But see, a pilot wants to be corrected. He wants to know the truth. He wants to do that. A pilot would never say to the to the control tower, what are you talking about? I've been flying planes 20 years. You can't even fly a plane. All you can do is play with a computer. What are you telling me what to do for? See, we, we wouldn't do that. Because in all these other areas of our life, we know that the truth is healthy for us. It's good for us. It guides us into a better life. We get a better harvest when we agree with the truth. 
So what we have to be willing to do, and it requires uh, asking God to help us. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We can't just do this just on our own. But we have to be seeking God to empower us to confess without condemnation. To agree with the truth when it speaks against me. But not to be wounded by condemnation because Christ has already taken both the blame and the shame. And I don't have to worry about that. And then we talk about that, that as Christians, when I've missed it, the healthiest thing I can do is take the blame. Yes, that was me. That wasn't anybody else. That was me. That's my fault. But not take the shame. Because Christ already died and took that. He took the shame of that. And I have a high priest, Hebrews 4 says, who understands all my weaknesses. He already understands how and why I miss it. So what's my responsibility? My responsibility is to take the blame. If I blame someone else, I will not be transformed by the truth. The Holy Spirit will not wash something out of me that I want to keep. So I agree with the truth. I confess. Now, that doesn't mean that you know I run to the altar, bawling like a baby, beating my head over, you know, beating myself over the head, and promising God I'm going to do different. That's not what God is after. What God is after is agreeing with the truth. You're right. I'm wrong. Will you change me? Yes, I will. I mean, this is this is what God is. This is what it's all about. But to do that, of course, requires that we agree with the truth when it's against us. David is he's a very interesting person in our faith history for a lot of reasons. But for one major reason, at least from the way I view it, is that David seemed to every once in a while have amazing glimpses of what the new covenant was going to ultimately be all about. And one of the places that we see that so clearly is in Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1. Listen to David's words here. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now that's more of an old covenant statement that God covered their sin, but Jesus, the Lamb of God, came to take it away. But David doesn't stop there. He goes on, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. See, if there is truth living in your spirit, that doesn't mean that all your behavior is exactly right. But it does mean because there's truth in you, you are willing to admit when you miss it. That's what walking in the light is all about. If we will walk in the light as he is in the light, what's walking in the light is admitting the truth. That's when transformation can take a hold of us. So David goes on. Listen to these words. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day, your hand was heavy upon me, not to punish me, but to bring me to a place of confession. My vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess. Confess means agree that you are the one who's wrong. 
I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Confession brings life only when I let go of self-defense. Confession only works when I agree. I agree with God. He's right. I'm wrong. But I can do that in Christ because the shame has been washed away. The guilt, the condemnation has been washed away. The responsibility still lies with me. But the moment I take responsibility, transformation begins. We could take the whole year and preach on the life of David and still not get anywhere near to cover all of the amazing truths that are in his life. One of David's big problems was he had a son named Absalom. The Bible simply says that the problem that arose between David and Absalom, the root of the problem was that not one time in raising Absalom as David's son did David ever tell his son no about anything. So Absalom grew up more spoiled than than you and I could ever imagine. And because of that, the evil that began to work in his heart turned him against his father. Before long, he had actually gotten the local rulers there to decide to make him king. And so there's this battle that goes on, and David loses his kingly position to his son. And now David and his Remaining mighty men are driven out of his own city in shame. There's this amazing story tucked in here in 2 Samuel 16. If nothing else, at least write that down and look it up later. 2 Samuel 16. As David and his party passed Baharim, a man came out of the village cursing them. It was Shemei son of Gera, a member of Saul's family. Now, when it says cursing them, it doesn't mean witchcraft, demonic curses. It means what we would... He was cussing them out. That's what he was doing. Uh, (laughs) You know, you know, kind of... Well, no, I'm not... not, (laughs) Forget it. I'm not going to go there. It will not be well the rest of the day. And so he threw stones at the king... And the king's officers and all the mighty warriors. Now, this is David and his mighty men. And this one guy is cussing David out and throwing rocks at him. And this is what he says. Get out of here, you murderer, you scoundrel, he shouted at David. The Lord is paying you back for murdering Saul and his family. Did David murder Saul? No. What did David do to the man who's claimed he killed Saul? He killed him. And that guy really got a raw deal because he was lying about, he didn't really kill Saul. But in his lying, he, he, he should have agreed with the truth. But so, so, so this guy is blaming David, cursing David, throwing rocks at him, saying, you murdered Saul. And David knows the mighty men with David, they know this is not true. So he says, the Lord is paying you back for murdering Saul and his family. You stole his throne, and now the Lord has given it to your own son. At last, you will taste some of your own medicine, you murderer. And then Abibasheh, one of the great mighty men of David, said, Why should this dead dog, the guy cursing, throwing rocks, why should he be allowed to curse the Lord, my king? 
Let me go over there and cut off his head. No, David said. What am I going to do with you, sons of Zaria? If the Lord has told him to curse me, who am I to stop him? Then the Lord said to uh, Abishai and the other officers, my own son is trying to kill me. Shouldn't this relative of Saul have even more reason to do so? Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to do it. And perhaps, now listen to these words. This is why God was always able to get through to David. And perhaps the Lord will see that I am being wronged and will bless me because of these curses. David knew that the guy's information was wrong. But he also knew that to defend himself was a waste of time and effort. And it would put him in a place where he might be fighting against God. And so he took the blame even though he didn't deserve it. Well, wait a minute. Are you saying that there are some times in my life where I get accused of something and I maybe ought to just stay quiet and not fight back? Well, yeah. Kind of like Jesus, in whom was no sin, but before his accusers kept his mouth shut. There's a time for the truth, and there's a time to debate and all of that. But it's an amazing thing about David, about what happened. So what David does here is he is humiliated. He's humiliated because of his behavior for Many years with his son, he's humiliated because of choices that he's made. And now he's being driven out of his own home, his own town. He's being blamed for things he never did. But at this moment in his life, he decides, I am just going to trust God. I'm going to give up on this. I'm not going to rise to my own self-preservation, my own self-defense. I'm just going to leave this alone. And perhaps God will bless me. Because I'm not trying to defend myself. Now, you know, there's two words that are very close in their meaning. Humility and humiliation. Humility is when I choose to take the lower place and not defend myself. When I make that kind of a choice, God can work on my behalf. Proverbs two or three times says, before honor comes humility. So when we humble ourselves then God can be our defender and raise us up. However, if we choose to not walk in humility, to not humble ourselves, because the truth is the truth, something's going to happen and we're going to end up humiliated. And we're going to end up right in the same place we would have ended up if we would have humbled ourselves, except... For all the embarrassment that comes with humiliation. Embarrassment doesn't come through humility. Honor comes as a result of humility. But humiliation, it, one way or the other, it's going to happen. I, uh, <clears throat> I hesitate to use this example because it would make you think that I go watch movies. And of course, I'm way too holy for that. But someone told me. I think it was Frank. 
about this movie with The Rock, Dwayne Johnson in it. And he's a bounty hunter and he goes down to South or Central America to, to, to bring back uh, a, a rich 20-something kid, parents are very wealthy, and uh, he's broken the law and he's hiding out there. And so uh, Johnson goes down to get him as a bounty hunter to bring him back. And so he says to the kid, he says, you can either choose plan A or you can choose plan B. You've seen this movie, Mariah. See, this, I heard it from Mariah. Because I'm way too sanctified to watch movies. But Mariah, she... So he says, look, kid, there's two ways. We can do plan A or plan B. And the kid says, well, what's plan A? Plan A is you just decide to come along with me. No, no problem. Just come on and come back with me. Well, what's plan B? Plan B is I make you come along with me. And we go back. And the kids said, I think I'll take plan A. But, I mean, this is, this is God. I am going to form Christ's image inside of you. You can take plan A or plan B. But because you have chosen to be in my family, one way or another, the truth is going to do its work in your life. Now, you know, a lot of uh, what I've learned over the last 65 years, I've learned doing the holy work of fly fishing. And uh, I, I learned how to how to fly cast uh, on little farm ponds for bluegill. And uh, so I never had a lesson about fly casting. And there's a real art to it. When it's done right, it's like a ballet. It's a beautiful thing just to watch. It's quite, quite amazing. But I learned just as a kid teaching myself. And so I'm flailing my fly rod all over the place. And bluegill and bass, they don't care. Now, I'm holding a series of meetings in, in uh, Missoula, Montana, and the Bitterroot River runs right through Missoula, and it's just packed full of trout. But the trout are overfished, and they are very finicky, not like Alaska trout. They are very finicky. You've got to match the hatch. You've got to lay it down in the water just exactly right. And so I had a couple of days off, and I, I, I went, and I found a fishing guide, trout fishing guide, and I hired him and, to take me out for a, for a uh, half a day. And... So when we got in the in the boat, I said, look, here's what I want. Here's the reason that I'm doing this today. I've caught lots of fish in my life. I love to do this. My favorite thing. And but I am a terrible caster and I know that. And so when I get around water where where the, the fish are finicky, I can't catch fish because I'm not a good caster. So what I'd, if we catch some fish today, that's fine. But what I really want is to pay you today for your guide fee to teach me how to cast. So I, that's the reason I'm doing this, because you're an expert at casting. I want you to teach me how to cast. He said, okay, all right, I'm happy to do that. Most people don't ask for that. Most people already think they know everything. So, you know, that's, that's smart. So that's great. So we, we shove off. He says, now here's what I want you to do for the next half hour or so. I want you to just go ahead and start fishing like you normally would, and I just want to watch you for a little bit. So after about 30 minutes, he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some advice on how to make some changes. Now, if you look at this picture, this guy is throwing out um, probably around 50 feet of line. That's, that's quite a bit of line for a fly caster. You can throw 90 feet if you're really good. But, uh, but his arm is down here beside and close into his body. You notice that? So this, this, this uh, guide says, your problem is 
that you're flailing your arm and you're trying to use the strength of your shoulder muscles to try to get that line out there like you would a spin casting reel or a bait casting rod. And it's just the opposite with fly. You want to use the power of the rod flexing and unflexing. That's what moves the line. So the first thing I want you to do is I want you to pull your elbow in. Make sure your elbow is touching your rib cage all the time. And just use your wrist. And so I start doing this. And all of a sudden, I am laying this little teensy tiny fly wherever I want it. And my arm's not hurting, you know. And, man, I start catching fish, and this is getting to be fun. And a couple of hours go by, and I begin to catch less fish and less fish. And, and so I said, hey, listen, is, you know, maybe I need to change five. I said, no, no, we've matched the hatch, man. You've got the right thing. So, well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is you've gone back to that elbow way up in the air Slapping that thing out there, you're scaring all the fish. And I said, well, yeah, you know, I thought about that. But, you know, after I did that elbow up against for a while, it just didn't feel right, you know. And he said, oh, well, I'm sorry. I I completely misunderstood. I thought you were teaching you were paying me to teach you. How to learn how to be a better caster. (laughs) Said, yes, sir, that elbow is not moving. It is there no matter what. I got his point right away. I thought your goal was to get better, but the only way we can do that is for you to see what you're doing wrong and be willing to change. The reason this feels so comfortable is you've been doing it wrong for 30 years. Of course, that feels right. It's the way you've always done it. But you're going to have to change. If you want a different outcome, you're going to have to change. So indeed, I did. And now I enjoy fly fishing a whole lot better. Let me wrap this up here. With one of the most amazing things. In fact, the second book that I wrote, God's Brilliant Cure, I based a lot of that on this story about, about Jacob. Jacob is an amazing young man. His, 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 his name literally means, depending on the translation, deceiver, supplanter, one who grabs one, pulls him back so he can get ahead. Deceiver, a lot of variations of his name. None of them are good. And so growing up, Jacob, as the second son, is always trying to get ahead of his elder brother. He steals the blessing. He lies. He's so all this is happening. Now David has grown up, or, or uh, uh, Jacob has grown up. He's left. He's now got two wives, a bunch of children, very wealthy, cattle, all that kind of stuff. And he's traveling to new ground, and he hears that his brother Esau has found where he is, and Esau is coming with a large army, and he's going to kill him. After all these years, Esau is finally going to get revenge. And so David, being a very godly husband, takes one wife, half the kids, and half the cattle, and sends them that way, takes the other wife, half the kids, half the cattle, sends them that way, and then says, if Esau goes that way and murders all of them, I still get all of them. But if Esau goes that way and murders all of them, I still get all of them. Jacob, he's just acting out his name, okay? 
And something very bizarre happens. Now, I'm going to read it. It's just a few few words, but it's, 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 it's strange. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. In other words, they wrestled all night long. All night this went on. When the man, who we find out is the angel of the Lord, saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with him. That's incredibly painful. Then the man, the angel of the Lord, we find out later, says, let me go, for it is almost daybreak. Now, this is a very strange story, but it suddenly got even stranger. What difference would it make to an angel that the sun... I mean, are we dealing with a vampire angel here? What is going on? Oh, no, the sun is coming up. I got to get out of here. What, you know, what the heck is... I mean, this this is a... Look, I know you're smarter than me. This is a strange story to me. Let me go. It's almost dead. But Jacob replied, and apparently this has been going on all night long now. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Then the man, the angel of the Lord, asked him, again, strange... What is your name? Now, apparently, when you read this story, even though it's just a verse or two, apparently it's been going on all night long, it says. They've been fighting all night, and now it's starting to be daybreak. And all night long, they've been wrestling. Jacob would get the the upper hand, and he would say, bless me. And then the man would say, what's your name? And Jacob wouldn't answer him, and they'd wrestle some more. Then Jacob would say, bless me. And the angel of the Lord would say, what's your name? And Jacob wouldn't answer him. And they wrestle some more. And now it's almost daybreak. And finally, the angel says, what's your name? Finally, all night long, this has been going on. Jacob says, my name is Jacob. And the angel does a very strange but beyond awesome thing. He immediately says, not anymore. You are right now being transformed into Israel, a prince with God. A miracle of transformation just took place in this lifelong liar, deceiver, thief, and cheat. Why? Because he admitted his name? Yes. Because for the first time in his life, he admitted, I am a cheat. I am a deceiver. That's what I am. And I haven't been able to make myself any better than that. And God's response was, I'm changing you right now because you admitted it. You confessed. Now, there's more to this story, because if we back up a few years, Jacob's father, Isaac, is old and he's gone blind. He has always loved the older brother Esau more than Jacob. And they've had a very bad family dynamic. So he says to to Esau, who's a hunter, rugged man, hairy man, man of the outdoors, Alaskan. He says, go out and kill something and make that that, uh, stew that I like so much because I'm about to die. Bring it back to me and I'll eat it and then I'll give you the final blessing and then I die. Well, Jacob and his mom overheard that. And so his mother said, Jacob, quick, I will make the food your dad wants. You take it to him and tell him you're Esau. So he'll give you Esau's blessing. And Jacob said, but 
He's going to know that it's not Esau. I'm smooth skinned. Esau's real hairy. She said, that's all right. Go out, get some wool uh, uh, skin and put it on your arms so that when he reaches out to touch you, he'll feel your hairy arms and he'll smell the food that he knows Esau makes and he'll believe it and you'll get the blessing. And so Jacob does this and now he comes in and he says, Father, I'm your son Jacob and I'm back. And Isaac, I'm your son Esau, sorry. I'm your son Esau and I'm back. And Jacob, uh, Isaac actually says, well, how, how could you get back so quick? And Jacob says, because the Lord your God put the game in my path. And Isaac, who's blind, says, wait, wait, wait a minute. You sound like Jacob. Come here so I can touch you. And he feels his arms. And then his blind father says, well, I guess you are. Esau, you don't sound like it, but your arms are like smell the food. And so he eats the meal and he gives Jacob Esau's blessing. But in the midst of that, he says. What's your name? And Jacob says, I'm Esau. Now, years later. God shows up through an angel. Are you ready to admit the truth now, Jacob? Because if you'll admit the truth, I can change you. If I will respect the truth when it speaks against me, God can change me. I want to give you three words that you can think about. Endure, because all of us get criticized and corrected. And we, we need to learn to endure it. But there's a much better way to go about just enduring it, and that is when correction comes, embrace it, because it's for your good. But there's even a better way to do it, and that is to learn to actually invite it. If we will say to the people that we trust and that we love, tell me the truth about me. I don't want to stay like this. I want to have a respect for the truth because there's transforming power in it. We're much more healthy in our walk with God if we learn to invite it. And as we walk out of here today, let's walk out of here inviting the Holy Spirit to grow a greater love for the truth so that we will respect the truth because we know that it will produce good in our lives. And as you walk out of here, remember... Somebody is going to cross your path this week by God's design that needs to hear this good news. And you're the somebody who can tell them. Amen. Father, we love you. We thank you for the life that you're putting in us again and again and again. Father, you are forming the image of your son in us. And you will not stop until you're finished. And we enjoy it for all of eternity. We thank you for it. Give us an opportunity to share the good news with people this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us on this new covenant journey at markdrake.org.